Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I really don't think I would be satisfied if I walked straight into a high-level job. I think there's something to be said about those struggles and how they really fuel your desire to keep going. And I'm, I'm a big believer in writing your goals. So a couple of years ago, I wrote down how much I wanted to earn a month, and now I do that. That is author and film critic Alicia Malone, and this is episode 205 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. You're you. Wherever you are, wherever we are, let's do this. Let's come together in this beautiful realm of podcasting beauty and enjoy a conversation between three people, me, my guest, and you. Uh, and today it is with Alicia Malone. You can find her on Twitter or Instagram, Alicia, A-L-I-C-I-A, Malone. Alicia Malone um, is where you can find her. More about her in just a moment. Thank you very much to everybody that sent me a picture of what they look at while they're listening to the show. You can uh, send me an email, send Osher email at gmail.com. That's the surefire way to get to me. I read all the emails, write back to most of them. Um, just uh, shoot me a picture of whatever it is you're listening to right now. Or you can tag me on Insta or do an Instagram story. I don't mind. It's just really fun for me and everybody when you... Uh, send a photo of what you're looking at while you listen to the show because it helps everyone that listens just kind of go oh look we're all doing different things while we listen to the show whether you're you know i don't know cleaning a house or walking a dog or looking at something fantastic somewhere on the planet um i've got another brilliant one from uh korea this week um there's a flight attendant who travels around the world regularly and she sent me a fantastic photo of korea she sent me a photo of the alleyways of um i think it was osaka uh, a few months ago, and I got a great one from Seoul in South Korea today. Uh, so thank you very, very much, wherever you are in the world or in, in Australia or in your suburb or in your house, wherever it happens to be, whatever you're listening to, whatever you're looking at as you're listening to this right now, take a photo of it and send it to me. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Speaking of the email, thanks to everybody that reached out about my hip. Um, if you listened last week, I was whinging a bit about 
my hip and that I've kind of got old man stuff happening to me. Uh, it's nice to know that I'm not alone. It's nice to know I'm not the only person that, that, that goes through this. Um, it's been a bit of a battle. Um, just sitting for five or ten minutes is enough to hurt, and that kind of sucks. And it's, it's hard when my ruminating brain goes, oh, something to obsess about, and kind of take over. So I, it's funny. I look like when I've been getting in trouble at school because I do a lot of write-outs. I just kind of write all the reframing and write all the rationalization down. So I've just got pages and pages full of the same thing. But whatever it takes to get the thoughts out of my brain, that's uh, that's what I'm doing. So thanks, everybody. Uh, they've got in touch about that. Also, thanks to everybody that wrote it about the Benjamin Law episode, which is last week, a cracking, cracking listen on the topic of Benjamin Law and the same-sex marriage plebiscite. If you're in Australia, get that envelope in the box. If you've already sent it, call just one relative this week and just make sure that they've pop their envelope in the slot. Just keep calling until you get to the one person that hasn't sent it. And they go, hey, just tick a box and send it in because there would be nothing worse than only like a 60% turnout, all right? And then whoever gets the vote, it'll be doubt on the other side and that'll suck no matter what. So make sure you get that vote in. I don't know about you, but I've been engaging with a bunch of no voters online rather than just kind of shutting them down and going, you're an idiot, you know, just actually going, what are you actually worried about? And it's confronting to understand that the, the, the vast majority of people who are no voters are, are really, really powerfully, powerfully, extremely religious or extremely religious and extremely paranoid. And I, diff I guess it's kind of difficult because uh, I don't spend a lot of time with people like that and nobody in my life is really like that. And so, you know, going, okay, okay, so this is what you do to get through your day. Okay, that's fine. Um, and just kind of hearing, you know, okay, so what are you worried about? Oh, I'm worried that my child will learn 13 different genders and want to, you know, have sex with a, a, a man in a dress in, in a public toilet. Uh, oh, no, that's not it. Okay, there's a lot of fear going on and it's not, that's not okay. Uh, it would suck to be that afraid every day, you know? It would really be frightening, especially seeing rainbow flags everywhere and, and, and thinking that, you know, the world is, is ganging up against you. But I guess when you've been told or you believe your whole life that, you know, this particular religion is what governs the law of the universe and then suddenly a large amount of society is going, well, actually, it doesn't, it would be really confronting. It'd be really hard. So... I guess if you're struggling with that, my heart goes out to you. I understand. Try, try to believe that it's going to be okay, I guess. Try to trust that, you know, if you want to believe that everything is part of a bigger plan, maybe this is a part of that bigger plan. You just didn't see it coming. Um, but I promise it's going to be okay, all right? And, and try to understand that your particular religion doesn't have anything to do with anybody else's life. Um, in the same way that my marriage has in no way any effect upon your marriage, please see that a marriage between two women or two men will also have no effect on your marriage and that those two men getting married somewhere in a suburb of Adelaide will have nothing to do with what your kid learns at school. All right? I promise. It's going to be fine. So get that vote in, okay? Get that envelope in the slot. Pop it in the post box. Find what a post box is first. Understand that there's a thing called a postal system. Never mind. You know what I'm talking about. 
I wrapped up radio this week, finished up at Hit 105. A big thank you to everybody that f- had faith in me and, and gave me the shot, uh, from Grant Blackley to Dave Cameron to Gemma to Craig to Richard to Adrian to Ego to everybody that, um, to Irene that pushed for me so hard to everybody that, uh, worked, Sam Cav, without you, it wouldn't have happened to everybody that pushed so hard to get me in and, and give me that chance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you gave me a shot and it was a great two years. It was brilliant. And if I could have found the time to do it, I would have kept doing it. But, um, the fact is that, you know, there's this new show coming up and it just wouldn't have been right on the rest of the team to take, take six weeks away. Um, and I, yeah, I'll miss it greatly. It's tough, you know, a job you've worked your whole life to get, to get breakfast radio and then having to step away from it. It's a tough thing to do, but I, I couldn't be more grateful for all the support and goodwill from everybody that worked so hard to get me in and help me along the way and support me as I went. And a massive thank you to Stav and Abby and Matt for being just absolutely brilliant and uh, dealing with me and my tiredness and apparently six different versions of me that shows up at work sometimes. I'm yet to get those six different versions off you, Abby. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, but I guess, I guess I've got to make this Bachelor in Paradise show and, and write a book. So it's not like I'm going to be not busy. <laughs> I've just got to write this book. So that's pretty much what's happening in my week. I'm trying to remember to relax to reframe, to refocus, to move, to meditate. Relax, reframe, refocus, move, meditate. These are the ways out of rumination. That's what I've got to remember. So let me tell you about my guest today. I am stoked that we are going to have this chat. Alicia Malone is an author, a film critic, and a friend who lives in Los Angeles, California. She and I, she's Australian, and she and I crossed paths a few times in our careers. And uh, she actually mentions uh, the first time we met, which was at a photography exhibition that I was holding in 2010. And it's a, a beautiful example of going out and, and seeking out and and putting out what it is that you want in the world and what it is that you want in the universe and seeking out those markers and, and pushing yourself towards those goals and, and keeping your head up and noticing for obstacles and shifting and pivoting and just sort of keeping in that similar direction because she's a, a, a remarkable woman. We crossed paths a few times in our careers. Um, we grew to become quite close during my time in Los Angeles. She's a fantastic friend. The difference is uh, Alicia managed to keep her head above water and stay afloat in LA. I ended up coming back to Sydney. Alicia's career path, um, when I think about, you know, when people ask me, how do I get into the entertainment industry? How do I get into media? How do I forge a path in this world of new media and digital media? Alicia's career path reads like a blueprint for success. Her tireless work ethic, her unbelievable drive, her undeniable drive, uh, and her creative creation of her own work is an example to follow. Alicia's written a book. It's called Backwards and in Heels, chronicling the path of women in the film industry. It's out now on Amazon or wherever it is that you buy your books. You can follow her online wherever at Alicia Malone is on Twitter or Instagram. That's where you'll find her. 
A-L-I-C-I-A-M-A-L-O-N-E. Yeah, that's it. It's not often that I interview my close friends on this show. Not often at all. But I'm so happy that I can have this chat with Alicia right now because her story is a story that reads like a how-to in creating an authentic life that you love to live. Enjoy this chat with Alicia Malone. How are you, Alicia? I'm doing good. How are you? Oh, I'm, look, I'm so happy to see you. I know we're on Skype. I know we're far away, but it's just so <laughs> wonderful to uh, to see you. Um, yeah, and this, that we're doing a podcast together. I know. This is a very LA thing, I was going to say, that one of my friends was joking with me the other day that you catch up with people here in LA by appearing on podcasts or YouTube videos with your friends. So that's just the way that we catch up. So I'm glad that it extends to Australia as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of stuff I'd like to talk about today, but I'm, I'm, I'm particularly, I'm just, I just really wanted to have you on the show for, for quite a long time, um, but you know, in the time it took us to get on the show, you went and you put out a book. Um, <laughs> yeah. so I wanted to get you on anyway. <laughs> yeah, good. And I've wanted to be on this show, by the way, for a long time. I remember when you started it and now what, you're up to 200 something episodes? Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I think you, I mean, I'm just amazed at how you're able to keep it up with your workload and uh, how you were really, you know, one of the, the first people that I knew that started a podcast and it's just been going so well. So congrats. Well, we had a, we, well, well thank you. We had a little one together for a little yeah, while. I remember calling you up fun. one day and I just said, I don't care what you say, I'm coming around and we're recording one. I know. That's what you're great at. You're like, just do it. I am just, I'm so happy to we're catching up with you. Uh, you are in your beautiful apartment in, in Silver Lake, which is in the east of Los Angeles, which is uh, fairly, I'd say fairly arty part yeah. of town hipster i'd yeah. say yeah i i love this part of town because you can walk places and as you uh, know i mean venice where you used to live was similar that you could walk to coffee shops and and restaurants and yeah. and places to go but that's rare in la you usually have to drive yeah. everywhere and that that might be a, a, a i mean i understand like in in suburbs and stuff like that in australia that you know, we're used to having pedestrian hubs in cities, but in Los Angeles, it really isn't the case. Yeah. There's, there's not really many places you can walk around and it can, it can suck time out of your day. Uh, you can do three things and it'll be six o'clock. And you're like, where the fuck did the day go? <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. It's spend so many hours in my car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. We're not even a minute in and we're talking about <laughs> LA traffic. fucking traffic. <laughs> 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 it's so true. It just it defaults to that conversation when you're talking about LA. I uh, know. Uh, so, do you take the 101 to get wait? No. <laughs> 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 um, so, I, I want to get to your, uh, you know, talk about your book uh, backwards and in heels. I want to talk about the work you're doing with um, Criterion. Yeah. And uh, but I think it would be uh, remiss to not talk a bit about your path and how you got where you got because you are, and I talk about you quite a bit when people ask me about <laughs> the industry and how to get in the industry and how to get into into television or media or new media, and you are often a person that I that I talk about as far as your career path goes. So if you could hit rewind for me, um, <laughs> you, you grew up in you grew up in Sydney, if I'm not mistaken. Grew up in Canberra. In Canberra. Yeah, good old Canberra. I grew up there and 
I watched a lot of films when I was young, a lot of classic movies and indie films and art house films, and didn't really have that many people to talk about films with, so I kept them a lot to myself. I tried to start a film club at high school, but nobody came to my screenings, <laughs> unfortunately. And then straight after high school, the day after I graduated, I moved up to Sydney. And by that stage, I decided I wanted to work in television. So I just. So did... hang on. Wait, 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 wait. Stand by. Stand okay. by. So tell me about the weeks leading up to graduating high school. Because obviously, <laughs> you know, you there's a few things you need to move to Sydney. You need. I don't know, maybe at least a thousand bucks. You might need a car or a bus ticket. Yeah. You might need some kind of plan. T- take us through that. Yeah. I and didn't why, have any why, of that. why did you have to ex- escape Canberra? I didn't have any of, of those things that you should have when you move to a different city. Um, I just felt like in Canberra, I couldn't do the, the things I wanted to do. It was just very small. So I felt like my. My only course of career in terms of television in Canberra would be to go on the local news or to, I forget what it was called, but they had one of those shows where someone was dressed up as an animal, like a big stuffed animal, and they, it was a children's show. Anyway, so I thought yeah. like one or two things, and I wanted to work around film in some way, but I didn't know how exactly. And uh, my sister, Yvette, who's a couple of years older than me, she lived up in Sydney. So I would go to visit her when I could at school holidays and we'd go to the local cinema and we'd see films like uh, Fight Club and (laughs) Amelie and these kind of movies that really blew my mind. So I thought Sydney was a really exciting place. It was kind of the big smoke and I wanted to move there, but I had no money. I knew my sister and my friend Lucy from high school was moving to Sydney as well. But uh, no plan and really only had uh, a TV production course that I decided to do as something to do when I got to Sydney because I decided that I wasn't going to go to university, <laughs> much to everyone's shock and horror. <laughs> so you, while everyone is planning their schoolies excitement and, oh, yeah. and planning what what kind of parties they're going to go to, what were you doing? Yeah, I was probably already up in Sydney by that stage because I just left Canberra straight the day after. Um, yeah, I was just really determined to get up there and get working. I never liked going to parties. I was never really a party girl. I just wanted to stay home, watch films <laughs> and um, ride my horses in Canberra. And so Moving to Sydney, I just wanted to get there and I just wanted to get started. And now I look back and I think, you know, what was I in such a rush for? I probably could have taken a gap year and taken a little bit easier, but now I wanted to get working as soon as I could. So the the day after, uh, was it was it the, did you leave in a taxi? Were you waving out the back window <laughs> yeah. to your mum on the front lawn? What did it look like? What was the cinematic moment? So I was packing up my car, which is a VW T3 station wagon, which I called the Leashmobile, and packed it up with all my boxes. And I said, bye. I said, so long, Stinktown. I'm joking. That's from (laughs) the Simpsons. And then I sped off and I was so excited. I remember pumping music and just dancing along as I was making my way. And I did feel like this was on my way to making it. Like I always dreamed. I always read film books and books about stars like Marilyn Monroe and people like that. So I had that that dream of uh, first going to one day going to Hollywood, but for now going to Sydney. Right. And 
the, this idea. I guess you're 18 when you leave school in yeah. Canberra, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, right, because I keep thinking, I keep referring to my – because in Queensland you're 17 when you leave. Yeah, that's right. So you're 18, you, you land in Sydney, and it is a, it's a foreboding town. What was your what were your first weeks in Sydney like? I was like, where do I begin? Uh, I remember um, I was waiting for the the course to start, the TV production course, and I was staying. My grandma lived up in in Sydney as well, still does, and so I stayed with her at her place for a while, and that was a nice way to ease into Sydney while I was looking for a place to live with my sister and my friend Lucy, and then eventually we found a place in Leichhardt, which was a really Cool area in Sydney, still still is. I haven't been there for many years, but I loved it there. Had such a great feel about it. It felt very Sydney and cool. And, and we found this loft apartment, which I thought was yes. great. But then it ended up being quite, you know, quite uh, loud and <laughs> you could never sleep. If someone had the television on slightly loud down below, it was booming up the top. Uh, but I shared a futon mattress with my sister, Yvette, and I ate um, just like sago biscuits and white rice with chili sauce because I had no money at all, but I was just so excited to be there. So I think I wasn't that nervous. It felt really huge to me, but I was just filled with excitement. And to me, I I kind of made it because I was there. And then I got a job working at the local video store, Video Easy in Leichhardt. And I could see my apartment from the store, which I like being an introvert. I was like, I can see my home, so it's safe and it's close. And uh, and that was one of my favourite jobs, being at the video store. You have a, uh, you know, you're part of an excellent club of people who've gone on to have careers in this industry that do a job, did a job that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. To be utterly immersed and surrounded by thousands of films all day. What did you get out of doing that job? I got that I, I got to share my love of film with people that walked in I'm sure I was quite annoying to people coming into the store because they would bring up movies and I would sort of say are you sure about this one <laughs> why don't you try this other film instead of this I would recommend this and I love doing my my picks and putting them up on the wall I loved choosing a movie to play on all the TV screens although I got in trouble several times for playing things like Reservoir Dogs and families would walk in <laughs> very violent and lots of swear words so I got in trouble for that but I just felt so happy to be in a place where there were other people talking about film and loving film and I could rent as many films as I wanted for free so that was heaven for me so you obviously I mean I've started that habit quite a while ago as a kid but now you're you're fairly you're 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 definitely a movie a day kind of girl aren't you oh yeah for sure as, yeah, I, I think in terms of movie time. So when I have two hours free, I think, oh, yeah, I could squeeze in a movie. You know, four hours, I'm like, maybe two movies. <laughs> I've always thought that way. <laughs> That's extraordinary. <laughs> then you, um, it was a, what was the TV production course like? Because I'm always very wary of anyone that yeah. says, give me $5,000 and I'll show you how to get a start in the industry. Because yeah, I was did one good. once. <laughs> I remember, yeah, right. Because I, I did one once and I remember taking a TV presenter's course in Brisbane of like, you know, we're going to teach you how to use AutoCue. And it wasn't how to use AutoCue. It, mm-hmm. it was someone standing with like an old dot matrix paper, the kind of one that was joined together <laughs> that you would rip apart. And she wanted us to use Nico Pen and write the script out, and she would stand next to the camera and slowly, ca- oh my you know, God. carry it up. So you'd read it. I'm like, 
I paid you $500 for this shit. <laughs> I know. And I was so pissed off. Was it something like that? It was. It was exactly like that. And I was excited because I won a half scholarship and then I realised that they gave that to everyone. And <laughs> so I think they just set that rate for everyone and then made it seem like you got half price. And when I got there, it was very much like that. It was really outdated equipment with cameras with those VHS tapes that you would put in the side and then pop in and record. And through that course, the reason that course was so great is because I met a lot of friends. I had a place to go when I moved to Sydney, but I met a friend, Bree Hills, and she gave me the job at Channel 7 because she got a job at Channel 7 through her drama teacher from high school, and then she was working at Channel 7 as a production assistant, and they said to her, do you know anyone from your course that you do who would be great for the upcoming Sydney 2000 Olympics? We need more people. And she said, Alicia would be great. So I started working at Channel 7 through that course, which was amazing. And then uh, once I started at Channel 7, I was really obnoxious in that course because I would just be like, "Um, no, actually, at Channel 7, we don't do things like that. Uh (laughs) But, yeah, I kind of realized just how how wrong that course was. But it, it, it wasn't a waste of time because it gave me that stepping stone into a big TV network. But it is it is super important that, that we, you know, that that is the, because everyone, we all have that person in our careers. I was just talking about, JJ was my guy when I was trying to find jobs in the radio industry in Brisbane. It's the person that I'd met years before who recognized me and went, oh, yeah, that guy. And it just shows you, it's like, it's not, it's not just who you know, it's who knows what you know. Exactly. And what, what you know, and, and that you had that opportunity. And now for folks who, who don't know what Network 7 is, it's one of the three big free-to-air networks in Australia. I guess it's the Australian equivalent of NBC. Um, and, yes, they are the, the ones that carry the Olympics. And, of course, the Sydney 2000 Olympics was colossal. Network mm-hmm. 7 was the local host broadcaster. And the production must have been fucking massive. It was. Um, what was your first job there? I was doing auto cue, rolling auto cue. So first out, I just started standing by the side of the camera with a dot. Yeah, I was printer. exactly <laughs> like that. It was exactly the same. Although I did, I did miss the uh, the previous iteration of the auto cue, which was paper, but fed through a camera, so it wasn't. Yeah. It was more high tech, but by the time I got there, it was computers. So I started out just helping out clean up scripts for, for the news, for Seven News and photocopying scripts for the news presenters. And then I moved on to rolling auto cue or teleprompter as they call it over here. And that's been really great now in my career because I can read teleprompter really, really well because I was practicing that whole time that I was rolling for the presenters. But I really loved that job. I started out working uh, both for the news and for Sunrise, and this was Sunrise when it first began. So Sunrise... The six, six o'clock till nine o'clock in the morning, like yes. a Good Morning America kind of show. Yeah. Exactly, and this was a time when it was a one-hour news show, and then so I was there from the very beginning of Sunrise right till it became this huge, huge thing and, and a ratings winner. But I started out Sunrise doing auto cue for the presenters, and then that's what I did at the Olympics, and I lucked out with the job at the Olympics because I got to roll auto cue for Roy and HG, who are such a great comedy duo and they had the best show uh, at the olympics called the dream where they would just make fun of the olympics and it was really light-hearted and they had great guests and uh i didn't have to do much as an auto cue uh, roller for them because they just riff off the top of their heads so really all i had to do was flash up throw to break 
and then no really throw to break and then you absolutely must throw to break because <laughs> they would never wrap up in time to go to the commercial breaks. But they were lovely and that was a great time. Plus I got to meet Bardo, who was an Australian pop band and I was obsessed with them, so I was really excited. <laughs> and I work with Sophie Monk every day. Yeah, now, I know. So. <laughs> I still get excited about that. <laughs> what did it... I mean, you say so we talk, you know, you and I often talk about flight miles and, uh, you know, getting the flight miles at the video store gave you this incredible, you know, knowledge and breadth and, uh, you know, vocabulary in not only film, but also rhythm and editing. And uh, you would have been paying attention to many things like not only camera work, but also plot structures mm-hmm. and story structure and things like that. When you get to um, Network 7 and you're doing it, I'm guessing five, six, seven days a week at that point in time. Yes. Because you're the young one. And like, yeah, at least you'll cover the shift. Exactly. Um, what, what did you get out of that career experience? What's funny now, looking back, I realize that everything I've done has led to where I am now and everything, every step along the way has given me a skill that's become really important later on where for a while I would beat myself up because I really wanted to be on camera, but I never had the confidence to say that. So I struggled with self-esteem for many years, still do, uh, but it was really paralyzing in my early 20s. So I didn't feel strong enough to say that's what I want to do. But nothing's a mistake and everyone has their own timeline. So learning, I learned so much working behind the scenes at Channel 7. I did auto cue and then I did what's called deco, which is, well, first was Chiron, and then it became Deco, a computerized version. The graphics that go up at the bottom of the screen called the supers during the news program. So I would type in people's names, I would type in the weather graphics, and then I moved on to a couple of other jobs, including producing. But I learned so much about a TV production, what it takes to do television. And now when people ask me, how do I do what you do? I always say, try and work behind the scenes. Because if Mm. you want to be in front of the camera, you should know what everyone else's job is behind the camera and how you can help them out. Because I never saw the host or the talent as the most important part of the process. They're just one of the many jobs and their job is just as important as the producer's job, as the editor's job, as the writer's job. And once you realize that behind the scenes, then you can be a really good host in front of the scenes. So it taught me a lot, including finding my self-confidence in the end. The love of film was something that always rolled in the middle of that, and mm. the, but the dream of Los Angeles wasn't far away. What, what eventually got you on the plane? Uh I think I realized that it was scarier not to try than to try and fail. So I always had the dream of moving to Hollywood ever since watching these classic movies and reading these stories about stars. And again, I was felt too shy to think about moving over. Uh, I started working at Movie Network, which is a cable network in Australia, no longer exists, but it had three different channels, which I loved. It had a a classics channel, indie channel, and a new release channel. And that's why I started working in front of the camera, where I just started suggesting shows that they could record on the back of other shoots that I could produce and edit that wouldn't cost them any money. And, oh, yeah, I can host that too. Eventually they let me try. And then it got to 2010, and I thought... I should just go for it. And what do I have to lose? I I wasn't sure what was next for me in Australia because I wanted to stay in film. 
And I thought the same amount of people come to Australia, whether I'm working for Sunrise at, on air or Today Show on air or Movie Network on air, I'm still going to get my 10 minutes with Will Ferrell, who's in town and talking to everyone. So I might as well go to where all the film stars are in the centre of the film world. And that was Hollywood. And actually, I have to say that you were so great during that time, because even though we didn't know each other that well, you had moved over to Los Angeles and... I was following your photos of the day and I remember I came to your exhibition in Bondi that you had of all your photos. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you were so nice because, I mean, you didn't know who I was, but I was like, I, I really want to move to L.A. And most people, when I said that, said, how are you going to do that? Do you have a job? Do you have savings? Where are you going to live? Do you know anyone? You know, L.A. is a tough city. I don't know if you could do it. And I remember you pointed to the photo that I ended up buying of you in front of the Arclight Cinerama Dome, the, the yeah. cinema here in Hollywood, the famous old school cinema. And you said, that's going to be your local cinema when you move to L.A. And that was one of the first times that someone said, like, you can do it, essentially. So I still have that photo. So thank you for that. Oh, and it that's... is my local cinema. <laughs> Oh, that's so sweet. I mean, and that was uh, I mean, for, for folks who who may not have caught up. I did in two thousand nine and two thousand ten. I I took a I took a self portrait every day for a year as an exercise in my own photography. But what I ended up doing was documenting the last six months uh, of me drinking, the first six months of my sobriety, um, the last ever. Uh, season of Australian Idol, getting a green card, moving to America full time, like all kinds of crazy, crazy shit. The first six months of working on this new radio show, like it just turned out to be this most full on year. Um, and uh, yeah, the, that the, that gallery you're talking about, it's not there anymore. It was in Surrey Hills, but yeah, oh, I remember that Surrey night. Surrey Hills, was, yeah. No, that's okay. That's, that's all right. That was a gallery. Yeah, that was that was that was a fun night, and um, I'm so stoked that you did. I'm so stoked that you you got on that plane. Were you were you pumping tunes on the plane the way you pump tunes down <laughs> yeah. the the Hume Highway? Yeah, I was. I was so excited about moving to LA that once again I had no fear about it. I was just like, so long, stink down, and I got on the plane. And I had my teddy bear with me. I remember I took that from home, and I was at security, and um the security guard was like, oh, look at you taking a teddy bear to America. And I was like, that's right, I'm going to Hollywood with my teddy bear. And then <laughs> I just got on the plane and I was so excited and I landed and I was so excited. And it never really hit me that, that like, oh, I was in L.A. It's It does at weird times. So sometimes it still hits me where I'm like, oh, I live in Los Angeles. That's strange in America. But yeah. it was so seamless to transition. I'm sure you felt this as well. There's not a whole lot of difference between Sydney and LA. There is, but there isn't. So it yeah. felt very familiar from the start, and I was just excited to be there. Tell me more about what you said before about the fear of not going was bigger than the fear of going. Yeah, I just thought that I could stay and do the same thing or I could try something new. And if the something new didn't work, I could always go home. But I was kind of more scared that I would never go for my dreams if I didn't take that opportunity right then and there and that I could get very comfortable doing what I was doing and settle down in, in Sydney. But I always wanted something more. So I thought I just have to try and there's nothing to lose at the end of the day. Always come back. <laughs> 
It is a, but it is, you know, it's a foreboding place. And, you know, I remember at the time I was doing, I was working for a radio show called The Hot Hits live from LA. And a, a lot of my week, um, at least four or five days of the week was spent doing film junket stuff where, um, you basically go to the Four Seasons in Los Angeles or the Beverly Hilton and you wait in a very quiet hallway for hours <laughs> yeah. on end with the Hollywood Foreign Press. Yes. And you, and you wait. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. For your three and a half minutes, uh-huh. uh, which was five at the start of the day, but is now three and a half because someone ran late. Um, with an uh, uh, you know uh, your f- film star of choice to get that single over the shoulder shot of yes I really am talking to this person it's not just someone else's interview grab mm-hmm. and that I remember when I arrived it was tough for me watching you go through the same shit that I went through because when I arrived everyone's like hang on who the fuck are you and who are you working for yeah everyone's so terrified of your access what was it like. Uh, for you first arriving and getting into those those junkets? Once I started doing junkets, it was really surprising first to see how much of a factory process it actually is and how it is like the scene from Notting Hill where you just go in one after the other and chat to the star, but it seems so personal on camera. People think when they watch my interviews that I'm actually friends with these stars and I sit down and have a good old chat and no, I'm just like one of hundreds that day. It also surprised me that many people who do junkets don't care about film and they more just want to be on camera themselves uh it's more about how do i get my game or how do i get my show or people that just ask the very generic questions and don't try to put any effort into research or how to ask something differently then it surprised me the competitiveness because i've never experienced that before where i went over there and a lot of the journalists particularly from australia were not nice to me at all there was a lot of whispering in front of me and behind me at screenings i never felt very welcome there nobody tried to talk to me and everyone was just very suspicious so when they asked you who you're working for you're you felt like you were under attack because they wanted to figure out your job or they wanted to figure out if you wanted their job everyone was so scared of their of losing their jobs funny thing is now that i've had a bit of experience a lot of those people have come back to me now asking me for jobs so that's interesting (laughs) (laughs) and i'm nice of course you know because i've always been nice throughout the whole thing but i'm like wow this is a turn of events But uh, and you mentioned, but you mentioned a few things that have made sure that you're the one who's got the power now. Because yes, I, I recall I would have stayed up all night the night before writing questions, and then someone bowls in um, 
like late from the movie studio funded dinner that night before having spent their entire you know meal allowance on booze the night before and mm-hmm. uh, sitting down and then writing scrawling out some questions on a hotel notepad that they found by the bed two minutes before they walk in I'm like you're not going to get good content there and fuck you because i'm going to have to go in after you exactly. and they're going to be in a shitty mood yes i know and i i felt the kindred spirit with you over these junkets because you were the same as me just prepare 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 overly prepare even if you don't use it you've got that research in the back of your mind and you can go off topic if you want and just to just to make me again more confident because it is a scary thing it's daunting you walk into these hotel rooms and it's not your space it's the stars and the studio space that's filled with cameras with publicists with hairdressers and makeup artists and entourage and you can hear them whispering in the room next to you they're watching all the interviews and you're wondering if they're judging you you've got the person timing you I and mean, there's so much happening And then you walk in. As soon as you walk in, they're recording. You sit down opposite this world-famous star and go. And so it was a huge challenge and um, something that definitely ended up making my confidence grow. And that was where I used to set myself little challenges, like try and ask for a hug at the end of an interview or tell Jake Gyllenhaal he was my future husband. There's a way to get myself out of the comfort zone. But I had to do all that preparation. I couldn't walk in cold. That it just terrifies me. Even now, that makes my palms sweat. How many times have you told Jake Gyllenhaal he's your future husband now? <laughs> uh, eight times now. <laughs> now he's, he says it back to me now. And when I walk in, he says, it's my future wife. <laughs> <laughs> but is it but you know here is here is someone that you have spent a total of 32 minutes with yeah i know and it's oh. a one-sided relationship because he doesn't know anything about me i've just been asking him all the questions and he has no idea who i am um and it's just a funny thing and and i'm surprised that he's embraced it so much last time i spoke to him was for stronger and because that's a film about a boston bombing I wasn't going to do that joke. You know, I kind of kept it very neutral. And then he was the one who was like, why don't you do that anymore? You know, what's happened? You've changed. And then the other night it was funny because I got an email that said from Jake Gyllenhaal and my heart like leapt into my throat. I was like, what? He's writing, he's written me a letter. It had an attachment that said alicia.pdf. I was like, what? And then when I read it, I realized it was a form letter that he's obviously sent to everyone in the Broadcast Film Critics Association, which I'm part of, in order to try to get nomination for the Critics' Choice Awards. So everyone got the same letter. But, hey, (laughs) I'm going to pretend it was just for me. (laughs) (laughs) As I was – and we talked about this before we started rolling um, about the idea of, you know, if your heart doesn't race before the mic goes on or before the camera goes on, you should jump out of there and – and and find someone else to to do it and not not long before i ended up having the radio job leave you know on my behalf i had got to that point with the film junkets and i was like mm. I, I felt bad going i kind of resented that i i was keeping this job from someone who had just yes. got off the plane that morning i agree and wanted it so badly i was starting to really not like it i was like i shouldn't be here yeah someone else should be doing this because i don't i don't love this as much as as i did um but what I was always very, very excited about was your ability to not only, for someone who's shy and you say an introvert, um, your ability to be so kind and so personal with everyone you met and how that led on to 
gig after gig after gig after gig, um, which has built you to this point now where you have a full-time tenured gig or, or two um, up your sleeve. Um, and you've you've kind of moved completely from the foreign press and now your US domestic press. Yeah, that's right. And I feel the same as you in terms of taking someone else's spot. And that's how I felt a couple of times lately. Uh, like I did a lot of YouTube channels when I, in the last few years, when I started working for American television and, and on the American side of things. And that was really fun. It gave me a lot. I learned so much during that process, but a lot of these panel shows would focus on, of course, superhero films and Star, Star Wars and stuff that I've never naturally been into, but that's the stuff that gets the clicks and indies and classics don't get as many clicks. So I started to feel that way when I was doing those shows that I'm taking someone else's spot. Like, sure, I can do this job and it's fun, but it's not mine to take. So I need to step away from that. So that's what I've done recently. And then with junkets, I've started to do less junkets. And I'd actually love to move away from those now because I feel the same as you, that I'm taking someone else's place. And my heart doesn't race that much anymore, except if it's Jake Gyllenhaal. It's, um, <laughs> you know, I can do the junkets and I've done thousands of them. Uh, but now I'm doing a lot more new stuff that is firing my brain in new ways and making my heart race. So that's exciting. And I'm glad that I am able to keep evolving and keep moving from the international press to domestic press and now into, uh, I guess, more of the, the streaming side of things with Filmstruck which is, as you mentioned, created by Criterion Collection. It's a streaming home for the Criterion Collection. And with that, I get to do some hosted intros for films. And that's a completely new challenge for me. And that's really exciting. So tell me about where financial insecurity w weighs into the, oh, I just, I can't, I can't actually do this anymore. Um, you know, is that a factor when you're making your decision? And, you know, to take me through that. Yeah, I mean, I feel very lucky now that I am making good money and um, and enough to, to live comfortably because, as you know well, there was times when <laughs> I had no money and I would do crazy things like go to uh, go to Sundance with 25 cents in the bank just because I wanted to go to Sundance, but I didn't have any money. So I've been able to work my way up to a good level and now I don't have to worry so much about money. It, it is a huge hit if I say no to some of the jobs, but at the end of the day I have to weigh it up. And now it's also I just feel a real strong want and need to, to help other people, particularly young women, get into this job. And if I have all these jobs coming at me and I can't do them, then who can I give these jobs to that would be hungry, that, that would love this job and love this opportunity and need the money at the same time because I don't need to live on that much money. I, I can live quite frugally as I've, as I discovered before. Yeah. And that, I think that is, that is a thing that I don't know, you know, people, I'm just going to sound like a curmudgeonly old man now, but you know, you see the Instagram uh, feed of someone who works in this industry and, and you go, I want that. Are you prepared to live on white rice? Mm. Are you prepared to share a futon with someone? Are you prepared to go to Sundance and spend all your money on the plane ticket but have mo no money for accommodation? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
are you prepared to do that? Exactly. Because that's, that is what it takes. It is. And I like to say it's all part of your E! True Hollywood story. And I don't think I would be <laughs> happy if I... I really don't think I would be satisfied if I walked straight into a high-level job. I think there's something to be said about those struggles and how they they really do fuel your desire to keep going. And there were times when yeah, I had no money, so I had to make money. I had to just figure it out. I had to go out and pitch myself for jobs because I needed to eat. And the visa I was on only allowed me to work in entertainment and not in a bar. So I had no choice. And so it really did help push me in the right direction. And then, of course, I'm, I'm a big, um, I'm a big believer in writing your goals. So, and specifically so. Uh, so a couple of years ago, uh, I wrote down how much I wanted to earn a month. And now I do that. That's amazing. Now, uh, I vaguely recall your old house in Silver Lake and you're talking to me on your desktop computer right now. Are they to the left-hand side of your screen on the wall? Yeah. Yeah. And I need to come up with some more because now I am, I have achieved a lot of my goals, which is crazy. What, is it, what does it mean to you to, be, to, to have those goals written down? Why is it helpful? I think it's helpful to visualize exactly what you want and, and being specific about it. It opens up your mind to opportunities that come your way. And I'm a huge believer in telling people what you want to do, like just telling everyone, this is my dream. I want to work for TCM. That is my dream. And then you never know who's going to know someone or who's going to connect you somewhere. And, uh, of course, being realistic that you have to work on your skills and make sure that you're at the level that will be ready when the opportunity comes, that you can walk in there and be who they need for, for the job. But uh, I do believe in the power of visual visualization. And if you can see it, you can be it. So I put it on my wall. And when I need to, I go over it in my head, affirmations, uh, talk to the mirror, you know, put on music. It sounds like really cheesy stuff, but it works. It really, really works. Do you adjust those goals if you need to? Yes, I do. Yeah, there's some goals that I would write down that then I go back and I think, actually, I don't want to do that anymore because you change so much as you go along. And, um, yeah, just really being as specific as, as possible, which you think it would make it more difficult. Like, for example, I wrote down that I wanted to have a job where I talked only about indie, art house, foreign and classic and cult films, and that's exactly what Filmstruck is. So I didn't think that there was going to be many jobs <laughs> around that allow me to do that, but I knew that if the opportunity came, I would be the right person for the job because I would make sure that I had the expertise, I had the practice on air, and I had all the skills needed. And when the when the job arrived, you were the only I choice. I was there, yeah, and I got it. So on that sheet of goals at one point, there was write a book. Yeah. What? How did the idea of what you wanted to write about crystallise? Was it always the idea I wanted about write, write about women in film? Always wanted to write about film. I always read books about film, loved those books, and thought one day I'm going to write a book about film. But I really got into exploring women in film when I started doing these YouTube shows and I would talk about women in film and I was shocked to read the comments that would come back at me on the YouTube, the YouTube commenters who were so uh, shocked that I would talk about women in film and they would be quite crude about it as well. 
And at first it was hard to take a lot of these comments, but then it just made me more determined. I'm quite stubborn. So I thought, well, no, now I'm just going to talk about it more. So I started doing more research about women in film and learning statistics around women in film and being quite shocked to learn that out of the highest 100, top 100 highest grossing films every year, about 4% are directed by women and 96% by men. That always shocked me. So I started doing more research into that. Then I got asked to do a TEDx talk in 2015 which would talk about the stuff that I was already talking about online because I was starting to get known for speaking out for women. So I, I did the TEDx talk, uh, learnt more about women in film, and then from that talk the I got a call from a publisher. Again, this is crazy, that I thought at the, at the end of last year, I thought, okay, next year is the year that I start to try to write a book. So I'm going to do a course in how to write a book proposal because I have no idea how that's done. So I started to do a course and a week after I started doing a course, I got a call from the publisher. And then it just so happened that everything the publisher was asking for, I had just learnt in the week before. <laughs> so I just managed to stay on top of everything. Like they say, okay, we need a query letter. I was like, oh, yeah, right, learned how to do that last week. I will write that up. And then the next week they said, we need a short synopsis and a long synopsis. Okay, I got that. I can do that. We learned that this week. And amazing that by the end of the course I had a book deal. And it all came from this TED Talk, which came from speaking out at YouTube. But, again, it was on my bucket list. Amazing. And and unfortunate that I think what you described earlier is called Lewis's Law, which is that the Lewis's Law is that the any article on feminism on the internet <laughs> is justified by the comments below that article. <laughs> it's so true. Yes, I know. It's so true. And it, it drives me crazy. I still am surprised. Every time it happens, it's like a fresh surprise that it's 2017 and you're still getting these comments whenever you try to talk about feminism. I didn't think I was even a feminist because when I moved to L.A., I just assumed everyone believed in equality. So I didn't even think I, I was needed to call, call myself a feminist. But then once I started, I realised, oh, no, this is needed. This is badly needed. And, I'm, and I've got this tiny little platform, so I might as well use it for more than Instagram likes. Take us through, and it's one of my favourite quotes in Hollywood, but take us through the name of the book, Backwards and in Heels. Backwards and in Heels. It's a great quote about Ginger Rogers, that she did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in heels. That was a quote that I've always loved, and I thought that that was a great metaphor for the history of women in film, that they have always been by the side of these great men. And they've done amazing things. They've just had a lot more obstacles to overcome because of their gender. That was the first title I thought of and I put it on my book proposal and the book publisher loved that title. So I was I was straight into it from that from that start. And you know what I think thank God I had deadlines in order to write a book. <laughs> because I don't know if I ever would have gotten it done if I was just doing it for me, but I never let anyone else down. So 
no matter what, I was going to get this book finished in time. With the book deadline nipping at your heels, did it allow you to have a bit more access to particular female directors and producers? It was really hard to get interviews and I was a bit disappointed by that because I thought after so many years of playing the jump junket game where I was always on time, I always wrapped in time, I was always very courteous, always asked the, the right questions of the stars, never strayed into personal territory, built up a good relationship as someone and a good reputation as someone who could be counted on in these junket situations. I thought that would endear me to these personal publicists that when I went to them with a proposal for an interview for a book that had a publisher that was definitely going to be in bookstores and on Amazon, that it would be somewhat easy to get these interviews, but it was very, very difficult. The first person who said yes was J.J. Abrams, and he is obviously a huge director and producer, director of Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and he's doing, I think, episode nine now, I think, as well, uh, overseeing the Star Wars franchise, also directed Star Trek. He, he owns Bad Robot. He's got a few things on his plate, but he said yes. And once he said yes, then other people said yes, because you know what it's like. It's They say, well, that's interesting. Who else have you got? And I was like, well, I'm in talks with all these stars. Like, yeah. Come back to me when you have someone solid. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of really pertinent that we speak at this, this point in time because um, there's, it's come to light the most recent uh, scandal in Hollywood about uh, Harvey Weinstein and also the, the guy who started it. Was it uh, Screen Junkies? Yeah, who I worked very closely with. Yeah. yeah. Um, both of those guys have you know, basically been disgraced. Mm-hmm. by, um, you know, with allegations about uh, sexual misconduct and sexual harassment and all kinds of things. But, you know, when when I got there, I mean, I think I heard the term casting couch when I was still a teenager. Mm-hmm. All right? So it's it, what what do you have to say about the culture of, you know, taking advantage of women in the film industry that has clearly been going on since film started. It has, and that really was reinforced to me when I was doing research for my book because time and time again I would come across these stories from women, these stars that were put in positions by men with power. And it seems to have happened right when men took over Hollywood from then on. So that was as the 30s approached. So at the very beginning of Hollywood, there were more women working in the American film industry than there ever has been since. Because at the very start of American cinema, it was very free for all. It was creative. It came from stage plays and women played an important part in creating. So they were actors, producers, directors. It wasn't a financial business. But when the Great Depression rolled around and movies had to make money and the financiers came in and these young male executives were put in charge, from then on there were many, many stories. I mean, everybody like Shirley Temple talked about a producer who exposed himself to her when she was 12 years old. You know, you get all these stories over and over again. Rita Hayworth has a really sad tale where she was paraded around by her husband, two different producers, and traded for sex and in, in order to get roles and become a star, and she didn't even want to become a star. So this has happened since the beginning. The difference is they've never been called out for it before. This is the first time that we've heard stories from 
A-list celebrities, A-list actresses who have come forward and all said, this happened to me, this guy did this to me, and we've seen these swift repercussions. And that's exciting. I'm hopeful for change because of that. I'm hopeful that people will speak about things more because I think it was accepted in Hollywood for a long time. And I know even in my job, I've seen it time and time again. I've definitely been, you know, in situations where I, you know, I've heard conversations and you just go, any other workplace (laughs) and nobody would be working. Everyone would be fired. Exactly. But for some reason. Yeah. I know it was like that a lot in the YouTube world because, and the film blogger world where there's been quite a few instances recently of film bloggers who women have come out and had allegations against and they've been fired because it was kind of a thing of these, these guys who loved comic books and were experts in comic books and Star Wars from a very young age they get older, they're writing about these movies on their websites or talking about it on YouTube, and then suddenly the boom comes and what they love is now mainstream. Everybody wants to read about it, everybody wants to watch their channel, and they become well-known. Suddenly they have power and they don't have HR often or uh, places to rein you in, so it's kind of a free-for-all, and then they hire women to come on board and then as women we get put in these really awkward positions and I've been placed in that several times as well but the Andy Signor stuff from Screen Junkies really shocked me and that rocked me to the core because he was someone that to my face was very supportive of women and I know everybody's not all good or all bad there are many shades to complicated people but I just had no idea that what he was doing behind the scenes in harassing fans. It was shocking. What can we as, you know, people who watch these YouTube videos, film film fans, what can, what can we do? What I've been saying, because uh, I've had lots of great, great young men who ask me the same question, and, I mean, there's so many fantastic men working in the industry. But I say to people watching these YouTube channels to just examine a little bit closely what they consume and ask themselves some questions. So some questions like, are women and people of colour represented on this channel? If they are on this channel, how often do they get to speak? Do they have an equal role to the the white men on the channel? Do they have a career span that lasts as long as these men on the channel or do they frequently get replaced, which happens a lot? Um, are they talked over? Are they mansplained? And then what, what is the nature of the comment section? And obviously you can't control YouTube comments. They're often a trash fire. Even if you look at an Enya video, <laughs> there'll be <laughs> horrific comments, but they, companies can moderate comments. So if you see a lot of targeted hate towards one person and you don't feel like it's being moderated, then that's a, a sign as well. So if, if and also how, how you talk about film characters, uh, female characters, are they respected or just sexual objects? So I say to people, if you notice any of this stuff, to unsubscribe to the channel and then to write a nice email to say why you unsubscribed and that you're not going to return until things change. I don't think fans realise just how much power they have over these YouTube channels because YouTube channels live and die by subscriptions and views. So if people leave, people stop subscribing, 
then things will change. And they do listen to their fans. So they have huge power. Considering the career path for a lot of people as far as, you know, YouTube being an entry, more entry level to producing thing, do you feel that this change might eventually seep into the mainstream uh, industry? I hope so. I mean, it's interesting how things have changed over our careers. You know, I, I love the fact that YouTube and blogging have opened up the doors for people because when I wanted to talk about film, I had to wait for my opportunity on camera, on television, on cable or, or in a newspaper or a film magazine or radio. And now you can just create it yourself. You can do a podcast, you can do a YouTube channel. And that's really exciting. I hope that these changes take place so that it makes it a safer place for women. I, my heart breaks every time I hear a girl or I get an email, which I do very often from young girls saying, I really want to do this job. I really want to talk about film. It's the only thing I care about. I'm studying film, but I'm really scared of what's going to happen when I get into this world. Will I be protected? Will I get a lot of hate from the internet? And it's a tough thing. So I've been racking my brains to think of how I can be of service as someone who's established in the industry. How can I create a support group or mentoring? I thought about teaching skills, te teaching courses, like we were talking about before, but with someone who's actually in the industry and can, can teach about this stuff or trying to uh, teach women about sexual harassment or what to do in the case of it happening. Uh, I think that's really important. But I was also at a TV conference on the weekend in New York. I mo moderated this conference and I thought it was really interesting because it's all these big TV networks that are now taking on board podcasts and YouTube channels and talking about how they can disrupt the system and how they can involve the millennials in their broadcasts. And I think that's really exciting that these big traditional networks are taking on these new forms of media. I tell you that that you just mentioned uh, in New York, and I just it is one thing I I absolutely do not miss <laughs> is the schlepping uh, around. I mean, it's all very <laughs> exciting to be getting getting on a plane and flying to New York, yeah, uh, from Los Angeles, doing it twice in a week, every week. Oh, I know. For seven months of the year. <laughs> oh, I know. And like the the seven a.m. flights from L.A. to New York. I came back from New York this morning, and I got a seven a.m. New York flight back but very lucky these days that um when i'm working for the places i work for now that i go business so <laughs> it's fun for me <laughs> leash i'm so and I get, happy i get for a car you. service with some of my name on it you know it's just it all makes a difference you know i love that yeah but you know that's seven years yeah. since you first landed yes and and that's that's and I don't know and you started in two thousand ninety nine two thousand all right so that's seventeen years I, I don't know how many people are ready to wait seventeen years <laughs> to turn left when they get on the plane I know uh, but it's worth it when you get there trust me I enjoy every second and I eat all the things that they offer <laughs> <laughs> so when. Yeah, and you're often faced with a lot of stress in, in your life. When you do have, you, we talked about you writing out lists of goals. When you are faced with a particularly stressful, stressful day or a stressful, you know, time, and it, and it can be frightening, you are still, even though that is your home now, you're still a long way from, you're constantly, and that's the thing I don't miss about not living in America, the constant 
cultural translation that goes on in your head mm. when you're trying to just perceive the world around you and take in the trash on the street, the homelessness, people going, well, absolutely he should have guns. Like when you just try and yes. constantly run all this stuff through how you were brought up in your home country of Australia. Um, when you do have those tough days, how do you deal with it? Uh, therapy has been wonderful for me the last few years. I should have done it from a long time ago uh, because I didn't have the, the easiest childhood and then just ignored things and ran away to Sydney and then ran away to LA. And as you can tell, I'm a workaholic. That's what I do. I just involve myself in work and and distract myself from everything else so therapy has been huge and I I never thought that I would would do therapy because it, it definitely had a stigma when I was in Australia that it's like oh come on why do you need therapy mate just calm down just have a beer um and that's something that LA people do but I love it the done talk therapy I still do that every week uh I also love go for hikes. So I go for hikes in the Griffith Park. Um, I love just going up to my local restaurant with a book and, and reading a book and having a glass of wine by myself in a restaurant. That's really fun. I'm lucky to have a very good group of friends. I've pared down my friends. When I moved over here, I was friends with everyone, which got really tiring because you've got to catch up with so many people. Now I've got a core group of really close friends who understand me and I can be myself around. A mixture of Americans and Australians, which I think is important because then you can talk the same language for a second. And then I do watch movies online, which I know is crazy, and I need to find another hobby because I watch movies for work and then I watch movies to relax. I just got a treadmill, actually, to put in my lounge room so now I can walk and watch movies so at least I get some exercise. Uh, but the, the work stuff is going really well. I still haven't figured out my personal life. That's another thing to dating in L.A. is a nightmare. Why is it a nightmare? I find it really hard to meet people. Um, I am an introvert. I've never liked those dating apps. I don't like the idea of going out with strangers. And I know that greatly limits my opportunity when the only people I meet are celebrities <laughs> and directors and people in the industry. And that can be really difficult to navigate. Um, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and I just prefer to hide out by myself. So I need to get out there more. Get out there, find some hobbies, and hopefully meet someone nice. You'll meet you'll meet the person in in your. As I always used to say, like if you, it, you you'll find the person on your path. Yeah. If you go, if you stray too far from your path to find the person, one of you is going to have to drag the other one towards their path, and yeah, you're not over there for a reason. Yes. All right. And they're not over where you are for a reason. Yeah. If you find them close, if you find them arm's reach from your path, it's it's going to be it's going to be all right. Yeah. It's going to be all right. And you're an incredible human being, Alicia. I'm really grateful that I got to talk to you today. Oh, thank thank you. you. Thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it.
That is Alicia Malone. Let her know you heard her here. Find her on Twitter. Support her on Instagram. A-L-I-C-I-A-M-A-L-O-N-E. Alicia Malone is where she is. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, everyone, for reaching out. If you do want to get in touch with me through the week, send Osher email at gmail.com. Please keep those photos of whatever it is you're looking at as you listen coming in. It's great to see what you look at in your world as you look around the world, as you're listening to the show. It's brilliant to be a part of it. It was nice. Someone took us for a walk on Sculptures by the Sea, which is uh, out uh, in Bondi at the moment. So that was nice, even though it's down the road. I haven't been yet. Big thanks to Andy Ma, my audio producer, for always having my back and making the edits to make everyone sound good. Uh, Haley Van Spania for coordinating time zones and calendars uh, on multiple times a week to make sure that I get time to do this. And, of course, Toehider for providing the extraordinary music that we get to listen to each time we do this show. Thank you so much for being a part of it. I'll talk to you next week. I love you for listening. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.